You're listening to We Can Do This, a podcast by the National Consumers League. We talk through the issues of today with the figures who have paved the way for social and economic reforms and those carrying on the fight for an equitable tomorrow. Leading today's conversation is Sally Greenberg of the National Consumers League. Hi, everyone. I'm Sally Greenberg. I'm executive director of the National Consumers League, and we're so excited to have a very special guest with us today for our podcast, We Can Do This! Exclamation point, brought to you by the National Consumers League. But let me go ahead and introduce our very special guest who is with us today from the Healthcare Distribution Alliance. We have with us Dr. Nicolette Louis-Saint, She is Senior Vice President of Policy and Strategic Planning for the Healthcare Distribution Alliance. And in this podcast, we are going to have the special opportunity to look behind the scenes of what actually happens to get our medicines delivered to all the places where we find it and need it. And it doesn't happen magically. It's a complex and very important system to deliver healthcare quality to patients and consumers. And so Dr. Louis Saint is going to walk us through what the HDA does. And we are so excited to have you with us. So welcome, Dr. Louis Saint. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Would you mind if I spend a couple of minutes telling our listeners what exactly HDA does? And then you can explain in more detail just By way of introduction, uh, the organization or the alliance has approximately 1,500 manufacturers. Like, wow. You serve 180,000 pharmacies, hospitals, healthcare facilities, and other sites of care. And every day, I read this number and it just blew my mind. Every day, healthcare distributors deliver more than 10 million medicines, vaccines, and healthcare products across the country. I also understand that your members include 35 national, regional, and specialty distribution companies. And they're not just distributors. Apparently, you've got a lot more going on than just healthcare distribution products. There are also technology innovators, information management experts, security specialists, and efficiency professionals. So if it's okay with you, let's just go ahead and talk about that. Although we should, by way of introduction, we should also let folks know that you recently joined HDA from Healthcare Ready, where you were executive director and president. And in that job, you were helping shape our nation's emergency response to natural disasters as well as COVID-19. So they're very lucky to have you at HDA because you know the whole ecosystem. And uh, you've got expertise in distribution logistics, supply chain reliability, emergency preparedness, reimbursement, and healthcare affordability and access. So once again, we have a one of the nation's leading experts in getting medicines to patients and to consumers. So I'm going to start by asking you, have I missed anything really important about HDA and what your alliance does? So I would say you haven't missed any thing. Each of those topics could be a podcast unto themselves. But I think one of the things that is so important is to think about 
the ways in which the world continues to change and the ways in which the world even has changed since COVID and the fact that so much of what they do is not stagnant. And so those businesses are evolving in ways that mean that they're also thinking about how to carry out those functions in an environmentally sustainable way, how to protect and take care of their workforce, how to make sure that they are supporting the pharmacies and the healthcare systems that rely on them. And that's a part of so much of what they do every day and those millions and millions of products that are being moved daily. I think this is a particularly timely topic that we're talking about today because we're certainly not through the pandemic. Maybe we're through the worst of the pandemic and then the variants that were so terrible and caused such a huge number of people to get sick. And sadly, we've reached the million number for people who have actually died from COVID just in this country alone. So getting the vaccine and getting it out quickly was such critically important. And I know it probably saved many millions of lives. But you and at HDA were instrumental in making sure that happened. With the recent attention on supply chain disruptions, however, how have you and HDA managed to be so efficient and effective in delivering vaccines and other drugs we need to combat the COVID epidemic. Right. So the pandemic was really a fascinating moment to highlight what the supply chain does every day and can do. And we spend so much time talking about the supply chain now. I often joke that, you know, I've been doing work in the supply chain before it was cool. Right. And we never talked about supply chain reliability in a real way, you know, to see it on the news and to see it in conversation. I can't go around my family with without somebody at the dinner table talking about something with the supply chain now. But if you think about five years ago, that was not a conversation that was in the mainstream. And when you think about the vantage point of where we are in the pandemic right now, the fact that as of the time that we're recording this podcast, we do have one million deaths in the United States from the pandemic. But we also have an approval for boosters for children ages five through 11 right now for the COVID vaccine booster. And having a vaccine is incredible and a testament to what the R&D and the manufacturing side of the supply chain is able to do. It is a testament to the investments we make in research. And as a clinical scientist, that is important to me that we are pointing out that this was only possible because we have been making investments in a research system that allowed for us to get the vaccine. But if we don't have the logistics and the plan to get that vaccine from a manufacturing facility into the pharmacy, into the health system, into the vaccination site, and get that vaccine into an arm, we've just got a vial that's not going to change the face of the pandemic. It's not going to get us out of a pandemic. And it is going to mean that we're going to lose more lives. So to me, while we don't talk about those logistics and everything that goes into allowing for a vaccine in cold temperature at that, right? Because we're talking about keeping the vaccine cold so that it is safe and it's maintaining its integrity until it gets into that arm. All of those logistics are what the distributors do. And they're doing that while we are also thinking about what it means to maintain healthcare 
in the midst of a pandemic. Because those of us who have loved ones who we know we've been nagging about going to the doctor and making sure they're getting their prescriptions refilled, even in the pandemic, know that healthcare has to do more in this time than just focus on the pandemic in order for us to not see a cascade of health crises. And that means that the medicines and the supplies that are needed to do what we call continuity of care have to be there as well. We need the aspirins. We need all of the prescription meds. We need the cardiovascular meds. We need all of that to move. And we need to make sure that as we're thinking about everything that the supply chain is doing in this moment, we're not forgetting the fact that those trucks are still getting to those facilities every day. And it's really incredible when you think about it, especially when you're thinking about communities that have fewer resources or have been historically underserved or may be dependent on a single clinic or a single pharmacy to get their health care delivered. How important is it for them to have all of the medicines and the COVID vaccine that they would need and want to access? It's so interesting that you're talking about how you made it happen. But we know that other industries are having tremendous problems with supply chain, but you and your uh, the healthcare distribution alliance managed to get those vaccines to the places they needed to be. You know, I live in the District of Columbia and I could go into one of eight different sections of the city for a vaccine, for tests. I could pick up the rapid tests. I could pick up masks. Somebody delivered that. Somebody from the HDA delivered all those. So a couple questions. One, how did you do it? Because you didn't have ready trucks with minus 75 degree Fahrenheit refrigerators, but you needed to find them in order to deliver the Pfizer vaccine. And then you had, you know, different vaccines that needed different conditions. How did you guys adapt, evolve so quickly and make it happen? So what I will never say is that it was easy or glamorous. So much of this is the hard, gritty work of just trying to figure out what the solution is that's ahead of us. And when you think about the different phases of the pandemic, oftentimes I try to think about it almost in kind of the first six months, you know, when there was no vaccine and it was all about how do we continue to deliver product? How do we continue to make sure that hospitals have what they need? need? How do we figure out how to overcome some of the logistics challenges that we were seeing, for example, when air transport was limited? So would love to start there and then go to you know, how we moved the vaccine. Something that's little known, but a really important part of how supply chain logistics work is that a lot of pills, a lot of finished product moves in the belly as cargo on air transport. So when we hit the lockdowns across the globe and all of these airplanes were grounded, well, how are we moving medicines, right? So there have been complexities and challenges that the distributors have been overcoming since the very beginning of this pandemic, recognizing that we are navigating a global supply chain and their logistics are going to be a really important part of how we see that continuity. And so that was one of the first challenges was understanding, OK, we're going to see that there's going to be a greater need for a lot of these medicines and medical supplies 
and it's going to be harder to move them in. There were investments in charter flights that were done. There were investments in thinking about how they partnered as companies to be able to get those products across and with the federal government. And that is what allowed for that flow to continue while those planes were all grounded. So that was kind of one obstacle that said, okay, well, we know we can figure out these logistics and and continue to adapt to meet the demand. And that level of agility was really important when we started to prepare for the vaccine administration rollout, because as we were preparing for that rollout for vaccines, we had to lean into that type of agility. So what does that mean? That means that we had to think about what type of capacity needed to be built and invested. And there were facilities and capabilities that were created and fully stood up in record time. Thinking about the technology, the types of containers that could be used to safely transport the vaccine. So, you know, your point about how do we move cold vaccines and when we don't just have all these trucks laying around? Well, we had to find the technology and find the containers that could be used. And then there were other partnerships with logistics partners that were established to really make it possible for us to continue to expand as the vaccine became available. So huge investments. We saw a huge investment made in the partnership with the federal government, but also across companies. I think often the perception is that companies are constantly in competition and that they never want to work together. But in a pandemic, we don't have that luxury. And folks understood that and they just got to work on thinking about how to actually bring everything that's possible, all of our capabilities to the table. And they started investing in building those facilities and thinking about the technology that would do that transfer transportation right away. So if we can shift a little bit to talk about what happens to the healthcare supply chain, we've had a crisis, the COVID crisis. What happens in times like hurricanes and other extreme weather events? So I spent a lot of time working on healthcare response during hurricanes. And one of the things that's really brilliant about the way that distribution works in this country and globally is that there is a concept of being able to have kind of geographical redundancy. So being able to make sure that if one location needs support, that you're able to pull things in from other locations and that backfill helps to allow you to continue to deliver that care. So using an example, Hurricane Maria that significantly impacted the island of Puerto Rico, also the U.S. Virgin Islands, as well as parts of Florida. What we saw in Puerto Rico was a need to not just focus on how to get medicines in, but it was about all of the facilities that were on the island that had the ability to move product. And we needed to be able to move that product and keep the lights on in the facility. And so there was actually a plan to figure out how to get diesel to the facilities And once they got the diesel and the gasoline to the facilities, they were able to operate generators and personal vehicles. And that's how they were moving across the island, delivering medicines, were in personal vehicles, securing that product and knowing that because of the rubble, it was safer to move a personal vehicle than a truck. And that's how they were getting that product delivered every day. And so that's what I mean when I say agility. It takes many different forms. But the idea is that we have this global network and we have this national network that allows for us to shift things around. And the enterprise resilience teams that are in these companies are incredible. And so they're thinking about this. 
They're testing for it every year. They're preparing for it. And as soon as the weather report comes out, they're looking at it and figuring out what they need to do. Do the lessons learned here and what you did in Puerto Rico, can they be adapted to other countries like internationally where it's harder to get products to people in more remote areas? Yes. So, you you know, when you think about rural or hard to access communities, the lessons that um, we've learned from disasters, but also just delivering care day to day to rural communities and remote communities, even in the United States, they give valuable lessons about thinking about how much product needs to be delivered. How do you make sure that you have that partnership with that clinic or facility so that you you do have a sense of what they need, but also how do you serve as a meaningful partner in helping them to prepare for potential disasters? And so that does translate to the international community. We've seen whether it be moving the vaccine actually across sub-Saharan Africa, thinking about responses to monsoons and tsunamis in Southeast Asia. There are all these logistical considerations, a very popular consideration when you're thinking about parts of sub-Saharan Africa and parts of South Southeast Asia is actually moving medicines on backpacks on uh, motorbikes. That's just a logistical reality. It's easier to do. It makes more sense when you're going through these narrow roads and trying to get to these remote locations. And so it's thinking about how do you make sure that the product is protected in a manner that allows for that to be safe. Something that also comes to mind are the partnerships that are happening with some in the tech space to think about drone capabilities. And so there's some interesting work that's happening now to think about how you could use drones to do those types of deliveries to remote areas. What's exciting is that what we do here and what we do in other parts of the country that are a little more remote can be used to reach folks who need the medicines most, who are unlikely to get access to the vaccines. So that is uh, incredibly valuable for, for, uh, I think, the global population. During the pandemic, there was lots of discussion about the strategic national stockpile. It's a mouthful. Can you tell us a little more about that and what your members do to support the strategic national stockpile? Sure. So the strategic national stockpile is about um, 20 years old, if I have my math right. The last few years have been a blur, so I might be off by, you know, a few years. But the strategic national stockpile was designed to make sure that there is a buffer that exists in the system that would be able to support cities counties in the time of a crisis, but it's been refined to a very specific type of crisis. So when you think about bioterrorism events, for example, so um, an anthrax scare, a radiological or nuclear attack that's going to attack a city and that city is going to need to have a bunch of resources and medical supplies very, very quickly, hours. We're talking minutes or hours. They're not going to have, you know, even 48 hours or, or more. They need that product in order to save lives in that moment. And so the recognition was that as we're thinking about national security, and often when we talk about national security, we think about our defense department, but this is a national security capability that says we need to have these medicines prepared and pushed ready to go so that if there are these types of events that need very specific types of medicines and medical supplies, we have them available. 
So that's what the SNS was designed to do, is to have that stockpile of resources ready. And, and they are in locations across the nation. And they're designed to be able to get to major cities and counties within 12, 24 hours max in a crisis. So what kinds of crises are we talking about? So we are talking about, and, and it's changed a little bit when it was initially created. We're talking about events like the anthrax attacks. We're talking about um, nuclear attacks, things of that nature. The SNS has been used during hurricanes. So Hurricane Maria, as an example, when some medical supplies were needed to support the response, there were products that were released. It was also used during H1N1 in 2009 as well. So there, we've seen that there are those types of events where the product can be used. But if you think about the fact that we've got, you know, 300 plus million Americans and we've got 3000 counties across the country, the SNS can only be but so big. So the partnerships that they have with our members in the Healthcare Distribution Alliance are really pivotal in making sure that they have all of the capabilities that would be needed. And so since COVID, there's been a conversation that's evolving here in D.C. about how to expand the stockpile, how to give the stockpile the resources and the partnerships that it would need to be able to be prepared, not just for the anthrax attack, but also for the next pandemic. And so we're starting to see that that takes the shape of not just the stockpile, having more stuff, which is easy, but also really expensive for us as taxpayers. Because if the stockpile just keeps having more stuff, then we're going to run out of places to keep the stuff and we're just going to keep buying things. And then if then a disaster happens and we don't need that stuff and we need other stuff, we're just going to spend more money on more stuff. So the idea is that the partnerships allow them to say, how are we nimble that we're rotating product through the commercial market and that that product is going to where it needs needs to go today, but that we also have some product in place that if we also need it in the next day or a couple of weeks, we have the ability to get to it. And how do we know that we're building out the type of capability that could protect the nation if it's another COVID or if it's an Ebola or if it is an anthrax attack? How do we get all of that medicine? And so there's a really interesting conversation happening now about how we do this expansion without wasting taxpayer dollars. So I think an important thing to listeners is what's going to be the next pandemic, if there is one. I don't think anybody really saw this coming in the magnitude of uh, SARS-CoV-2 and how communicable it was and its staying power. And it's at least if, unless you're Anthony Fauci or Nicolette Louis Saint, Dr. Louis Saint, you don't really see this coming. And I think for most consumers, patients say, what do we do to prepare for next time? What is next time look like to someone in your position? So I think that is such an important point because our memories are short. And so, you know, five years from now, I'll be the person reminding us that we need a robust supply chain that's able to be prepared for all of these things. And we'll be saying, but we don't want to pay for it. We don't want to invest in it. Right. And that's because we our memories are short. And I think what has happened now is a recognition that it could be a hurricane, it could be an earthquake, it could be a pandemic. And so thinking about how we prepare for the next one, the first thing is we have to admit that the next 
big thing is probably not going to be COVID because we know how to respond to that now. We have the vaccines for that now. So the next thing is going to be something new. And so we have to make sure that we're focusing on how do we invest in being agile? How do we make sure that we're flexible? And that means that we're going to need to create a whole new vaccine. We're going to be need to be able to leverage all of the capabilities that were set up to be able to distribute a new vaccine and administer a totally different vaccine. We're also going to need to have a healthcare system, and that includes a supply chain that's integrated in a part of these plans from the beginning so that however they can help that response is established at, at the beginning and not along the way. But it also means that we should be honest about the fact that our systems perform as well as we invest in them. So I'm really proud of the work that the supply chain has done during the pandemic. And I know that there are so many lives that have been saved because we were able to create and then move and administer a vaccine in record time. But that's because we invested in the system being able to do that. And so we've got to continue to make those investments so that we do have a healthcare system that can quickly prevent something because they're seeing it. They can detect it right away, whether it's in New Mexico or New York City, and then we can respond to it collectively. Now they're talking about something called monkeypox. Is something like that potential epidemic or? It has potential. It's a risk. But I think, you know, the the important thing to note with something like monkeypox is that that early detection piece that I just mentioned is a big part of the reason that we know that there are cases of monkeypox in a very specific county because our public health departments are doing what we need them to do. And the CDC has it under control. So I, I'm not that concerned. It's It's unpleasant to look at and it's not great to think about, but I'm personally not that concerned about monkeypox. But I can tell you that in December 2019, when I first got the reports of SARS-CoV-2, I called my parents and I was concerned and kind of started to talk to them about what a preparedness plan would be. So I've got a pretty good record. If I can uh, take a little bit of a turn and ask you on, on your own educational front, you've obviously accomplished so much in your career and have advanced degrees in chemical engineering and biological sciences, pharmacology. You've got a PhD in pharmacology and molecular sciences from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And for we were talking before we started, for a, a lot of women, that's a thing. Not just women, but for and, and there's many barriers thrown up and that'll be too hard. And tell us how you got into the, these issues and how you overcame to the extent that you had any of these anxieties. And I'm sure you're mentoring and a role model for young women, girls and young women. Uh, so tell us about that life experience. I am a first generation American. I'm actually the first person in my family born in the country. And I come from parents who immigrated to the United States, mainly for reasons pertaining to education and, and economics. And so I count myself really fortunate to, to have a dad who I think now we call them girl dads, right? But a dad who was like, 
you want to be an engineer? Okay, let's figure out everything about engineering. You want to do math? Okay, let's do more math. And a mom who just believed that it was so important for us to, especially as girls, to be fearless. And so I think for me, it started in a different place where I I feel like I went to college just kind of gung-ho and super excited and then got met with a lot of those obstacles later on. And so from that vantage point, I, I count myself as one of the lucky ones because I was already in the program before I had... Before someone told you you should be nervous or you wouldn't make it? Yeah, like you couldn't do it. And they're like, why are you here? Somebody else should be here. And and for the folks that are, you know, listening, I'm also a black woman. And so I've operated in spaces for most of my career that do not have many people who look like me. And so there were a lot of um, folks that did not think I could or should be in those rooms and in those spaces. For me, math was comforting because it's objective. There's a right answer. And being and that's why like the idea of um, some of our engineering classes where you end up realizing that math is not always objective was like really upsetting to me because it was like, wait a second. No, 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 no. This is right. And this is wrong. And I, I am trying to get it right. And they're like, no, no, no. You just have to make your case. You have to justify it. And I'm like, no, no, no. I need I need concrete things here. <laughs> but for me, it was um, recognizing that this is really what I wanted to do and what I believed that I was good at. My pivot point became when I realized that um, as much as I love science and academia, I often tell people it did not love me back. And so that environment um, was something that I had to shift out of. And that's what pulled me into policy. So when I do mentor young women, I, I try to make sure that I'm reminding them that I want them to not be me or like me. I want them to be them and I want them to be the best versions of themselves. Um, and sometimes that means just building the discipline to tune out those other voices and tune out all the people who are saying that you can't do something and really tune into you and figure out what you want to do and how to get the supports to be able to allow you to do that. Did you have mentors and did you have people who were your role models in history that you said, if she could do it, I know I could do it? Yeah. So I I still have mentors and I've been really fortunate to have mentors and champions. And what's funny for me is I, I was reflecting on this the other day. Up until very recently in my career, the majority of my champions have been men. And and so um, I've been really fortunate to have mentors and I still have mentors that, you know, will will be the first people to tell me you were wrong about that. I didn't like the way you said that. I watched that interview and I don't know. And and I, I love that because it continues to refine me when I think about um, people I looked up to. My vantage point was really unique because I am. Haitian and Jamaican. Um, I was born in the United States, born in Brooklyn. And so no one really, I never felt like anyone really looked like me. So it was always kind of pulling a little bit from here and a little bit from there and trying to put together a picture of like, okay, this could be possible. And while that is really daunting and really scary to kind of be in that realm, it also meant that everything was an opportunity. Because if no room had anyone like me, that meant that I could be in any room. And so that's kind of how I thought about it. I remember as a kid seeing Mae Jemison go to space and I was like, oh, my God, she's a chemical engineer. 
I want to do that. I didn't even know that was a thing. And to see her and to know that this woman was going to space and that she was a chemical engineer and that she was a black girl like me, those moments mattered. And I feel like there were so many instances like that where I looked across and just saw, for me, it was always about excellence. Like, oh my God, this person is is so amazing. I ran track for quite a while. And so always looking at um, the Gail Devers, Jackie Joyna Kersey's, those moments. Um, I think we were talking about it the other day, but like Dawn Staley to me to this day, totally different discipline. But just the fact that she is authentically herself and so good at what she does in basketball. It's incredible. And she she has been incredible to watch as a ball player and as a coach pretty much my entire life, <laughs> you know? And so again, for me, it's just been those moments of, of excellence and being able to watch that. And also from a mentorship role, one of my best friends actually now has created a nonprofit to support young children interested in STEM and STREAM. And so for those of us who've been in science to use that as an opportunity to give her ideas, to share with those kids and to create experiments that get them interested in this and allow them to see what's possible before, you know, they, they get the folks that are saying they can't do it. Your parents must be incredibly proud. But I, I want to shift a little bit. You were talking about the healthcare distribution system and how we need those places. You said there are 3,000 counties? Yes. So there's been attacks, verbal, even physical attacks on county health officials. There are people who've left in droves because of that what do we do about that? It has been one of the hardest times in healthcare and public health that I can recall. I've seen colleagues and friends of my own that have left their posts as public health officials, as emergency management officials, as healthcare professionals because of how they were treated during this pandemic or for fear of what could happen to them and their families because of the amount of vitriol that has come their way. I think the first thing we have to do is really humanize these roles. It's so easy to hate someone you don't know. It's so easy to, you know, use social media to levy attacks and to just to throw hate in the direction of someone that you aren't humanizing. But to remember, first and foremost, these are people. These are experts that are doing what they believe is best for society. But I think we should also be thinking about how we protect our officials. I think we think about this when it comes to certain officials, but we've never thought about public health officials as folks that have needed our protection before. And that has been a shame and it's cost us a lot of professionals, but it's also turned away people who are in grad school now and have been aspiring to these roles. So I think it's harmed our pipeline too. There's a lot to figure out. I think we are in a place where just as a country, we're more divided ideologically than ever. And I think it showed up in the way of how our public health officials were treated during the pandemic. And frankly, it's been hard to watch because public health officials, they'll tell you they don't deal in the politics. And they're not in it for the money. They're not in it for the money. They are they are coupon cutting with the best of us, right? And so they are really the folks that are in it because they're passionate about it. They care about it. I know health commissioners that wear sneakers and walk to work every day because they want to remind people that walking is healthy. Like those, these are the folks that we're talking about, right? And so for them, when they have to make decisions about their safety, most of them can't afford armed security. Those aren't options that are available to them. So when they're thinking about keeping their families safe or their job, 
they have to choose their family. So again, we just have to think about how we're protecting them. But I think also we have to acknowledge that public health is political. And that's a really hard pill for some of us to swallow because we like the objectivity, right? We like the certainty of this is the right thing to do. And you're in it for all of the reasons that have to do with just helping people and contributing to the greater good. And so the idea that you have to navigate the politics and think about how you're communicating with the public from a political lens, is just something that's very hard for public health officials to digest. You know, we have a program for teens. It's called Life Smart. And we educate teens from all over the country. They compete in the state and then they come to a national competition. They leave the program and they are absolutely brilliant on consumer issues and they learn about health and safety. And we had a bunch of vaccine questions and how they work and why they work. And it has occurred to me that it's all about critical thinking, knowing the role that these folks play, that they're actually heroes. They work in very hard jobs, high pressure jobs can get into a lot of trouble if anything screws up. Look at the baby formula issue. We got to figure out a way to lift them up, reward them, acknowledge them. People had signs in their yard. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. Maybe we need to start a campaign. Thank you, county health officials. So as and I raised the the teen financial literacy because those young people are carrying those messages forward. And um, I saw Dr. Fauci speak before the University of Michigan, and he got a standing ovation, and they wouldn't sit down. And he talked about science and the importance of trusted sources and the devotion that so many scientists have brought to addressing COVID. So we have to work together. We're a consumer organization. We work with, we do worker and consumer uh, advocacy. We have to do better about lifting up people like you who have been instrumental in ensuring that people got their vaccines, that they got their tests, that they got their medicines. And, you know, outside of COVID, as you said, it's cancer drugs, it's diabetes drugs. You guys make that happen. So we need to put our heads together and figure out how to make that work. And We've got time for one more final comment from you, and I think we could go on, but we've covered the territory, and this has been an absolutely wonderful, inspiring interview. Thank you. I, I'll make one um, comment on on what you said. I, I couldn't agree more, and I'd just give you one example, and I know this is true across a pretty large swath of my colleagues in public health and emergency management. No one's taken a vacation in three years, and so in one of the most taxing, burdensome, difficult, psychologically intense times of their entire careers. They've been working six to seven days a week for three years. And something as simple as thinking about how we can fund public health officials and public health departments well enough that they're able to say, I have enough staff here that I can go and leave for a week and just rest. Just one week. I mean, I I have friends who are public health officials that they would just take three days right now. Um, But just, you know, when we think about how to support them, understanding that, you know, there are luxuries um, that are really important that they have just not had in this very intense time. And that's, I think, a part of what we should be thinking about to help them. Well, thank you, Dr. Louis Saint. We are so lucky to have you at HDA and have you 
working for all the patients and consumers in the United States to make sure we get all the medicines that we need. We're going to continue the conversation and continue to work together. As I said at the start of the interview, we're very lucky. HDA is very lucky to have somebody of your background and your substance and your education uh, at uh, the epicenter of getting all these drugs and and treatments to, to patients. So thank you for what you do. And thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for everything you do. Thanks for listening to We Can Do This, a production of the National Consumers League. We Can Do This is a member of the District Productive. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast app. And hey, tell your friends about us. We love feedback. So give us a rating or review. You can also talk to us through the National Consumers League's Facebook page or on Twitter at NCL underscore tweets. That's NCL underscore tweets. Still can't get enough? Visit nclnet.org. That's N-C-L-N-E-T dot O-R-G to learn about our rich history in fighting for consumers and workers' rights, our current leadership, our education and advocacy programs, and to discover ways for you to make a difference in the world. Remember, we can do this.